beauty and skincare is always a hot topic around here, and today I want to tell you about a new product line I've discovered that I think you will like, Exponent Beauty. Listeners of the show will receive 20% off their purchase. More details on that in a minute. Exponent Beauty is a skincare brand with a line of activated anti-aging serums that are clinically proven to reduce fine lines and wrinkles. The beauty of Exponent Beauty is their innovative form factor. The powders are activated with a quadruple hyaluronic acid serum in their patented precision-dosed dispenser. The packaging is gorgeous, and the dispenser itself is refillable, so it has also reduced plastic waste. Exponent Beauty's line of serums can be found in med spas and spas and dermatologists' office around the country. The line is dermatologist-recommended and clinically proven to reduce those fine lines and wrinkles, and to increase brightness and radiance, and to firm skin without irritation. No more expired or underutilized products with Exponent Beauty, just high-quality skincare with ingredients that work. Go to ExponentBeauty.com and use code TELL20 for 20% off a purchase of $100 or more. That's Exponent, E-X-P-O-N-E-N-T, Beauty, B-E-A-U-T-Y.com and use code TELL20, T-E-L-L, the numbers two zero for 20% off your purchase of $100 or more. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the 10 Things to Tell You podcast. I'm Laura Tremaine, and I always have at least 10 things to tell you, and you have 10 things to tell. This is a show where we believe that sharing yourself will make you less lonely. And one of the most fun things to share about is what we are reading. Words are my life books are my breath. I love to share with you all the best books that I have read lately because no matter the question, reading is always the answer, isn't it? And while I would happily wax poetic here into this microphone alone, as I occasionally do, it really is more fun to have a friend, to have a bit of a back and forth to talk books with. And so my guest today is a returning guest, Sarah Hildreth. She is the creator of Fiction Matters. It's a literary Instagram account, a newsletter, and a book club that is all focused on putting thought-provoking books into the hands of adventurous readers. She also co-hosts the podcast Novel Pairings, which is dedicated to making the classics readable, relevant, and fun. You might remember Sarah from way back on episode 107, Reasons to Read. She's also one of my favorite literary people to follow on Instagram, where she posts as Fiction Matters. And our conversation today, we are not only sharing the best books that we've both read lately, but we also have a really good conversation about being a book reviewer versus being a book critic that I thought was really interesting. 
And then, of course, the meat, though, of our conversation is about the best books that we've read lately. And she brings some great things to the table, books that I hadn't yet heard of, which is always a plus. And I get to talk about a novel that I recently finished that is probably going to be one of my favorites of all time, like going on that list for me. It is that good. We have two pieces of bonus content that go along with this episode over at my Secret Stuff Patreon this week. First, we have an extended cut version of this episode where Sarah tells us about a couple of books that are coming out this spring that she's raving about and she wants to make sure is on our radar. Also, in that extended cut version of the episode, she shares with us this new system that she has for managing her TBR, her to-be-read stack. When you read as much as Sarah does, as much as many of us do, the choices of what to read next are kind of endless. Like we all have unread books on our shelves and on our Kindles, in our Audible libraries, we have library holds, all the things. It can be so overwhelming to pick from all the things that we might want to read next. So over on Patreon, in the extended cut of this episode, Sarah shares the system that she has recently developed to make sure that she's reading the books next that are a true priority for her. The other piece of bonus content we have this week over at Patreon is a spoiler-full episode talking about The Bee Sting by Paul Murray. Okay, fine. This is the book that I already mentioned a few minutes ago that has become an instant favorite of mine. And if you have read this one, you know that it definitely needs to be discussed, especially that ending, the ending. And so my producer, Colleen, who also recently read The Bee Sting by Paul Murray, she jumped on with me so that we could unpack all of our big feelings about this incredible novel. If you're interested in hearing any of that bonus content, you can join us over at Secret Stuff by going to lauratremaine.com slash secret stuff. I'll put a link in the show notes as always. Every month over in Secret Stuff, we talk about books in a reading roundup. We have a book club that meets over Zoom. I also regularly share personal episodes and then just bonus content like this, including ad-free versions every week of the 10 Things to Tell You podcast. It's a monthly membership. You can also sign up for a free trial. Check us out at lauratremaine.com slash secret stuff. And now to my best books lately conversation with Sarah Hildreth, the creator of Fiction Matters. Welcome to 10 Things to Tell You, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me, Laura. I love talking books with you online. And it's just, it's just a pleasure to be here. We were chatting before we press record about your baby girl who's not a baby anymore. She's a toddler. And as we were just sort of talking about that, it just made me realize like, I followed you since before you had her. And it's just like the internet is such a wild, friendly place. It really is. It really is. I know there are so many things that are wrong with it, but there are so many things that are beautiful about the internet. And connecting with other readers and other moms and and just other people who like to be thoughtful and critical about life is one of the joys of it. It really is. Like Bookstagram, which you and I have bonded over, like we have mixed feelings yes. about 
the bookstagram community and you're you're like more squarely in it very much part of it yes <laughs> yeah like you're like a book account yes where i just you know am not that but i do occasionally share what i read online and then also i just like follow other people who are sharing things so i just observe the bookstagram of it all <laughs> but even with the mixed feelings about the pros and cons of of that community I also am so grateful for it like I feel like following people online who read differently than I do who encourage me to read outside of my normal genres who encourage me to read more which is actually one of my uh rubs about Fixtelgram because it feels very competitive and I hate that like absolutely competitive in like a numbers way like how much you have read that drives me nuts but Same. also I do think that I uh, maybe I'm responding to it. I do think I read more. <laughs> yeah, same, same on all accounts. <laughs> One of the things that I love that you do is your newsletter. So what I love about it is different than Bookstagram, which are just you can just scroll on by and it's just a quick a quickie glimpse of a book. Is that you unpack things like a a little more academically in your newsletter? which I really appreciate because I don't take in a lot of that content and it makes me sort of miss those discussions from, you know, college and that kind of thing. And one of the things that you've talked about recently is reviews versus criticism. And I didn't even know that I needed to think about that angle until I heard you write about it. Can you sort of just explain for the readers what kind of what you were unpacking in your newsletter about that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I I really like to use my newsletter as a space to kind of explore how I'm reading, not just what I'm reading. Like the bookstagram is like what I'm reading. And then in the newsletter, how I read, how I review, how I think about books, because I just think it's so interesting. Like reading is so internal and I'm just curious how other people read. And so I thought it would be fun to kind of make that more public. And I've been thinking a lot about this reviews versus criticism. And I don't have like a clear delineation yet. It's like something I'm exploring and thinking about and working towards. But I mean, I'll be honest that part of it, a huge part of it was born out of my maybe like irrational anger at book reviews, online book reviews that are basically like, I didn't like this book because I wanted it to be a different book. And those mm. make me so mad. I think they're so common. I think that, our, of course, our expectations play a huge role in how we receive a book. But as somebody who's, you know, trying to find what to read next, I find those reviews aren't very helpful. Like, I want to know how, how the book as it exists, how well it worked, what you thought of what the author was doing, whether the author succeeded in what they were doing. And so, I just saw so many of those reviews and started thinking like, why does this bother me? <laughs> and I think it's because I kind of come at book reviews myself through a much more academic lens. Like I have a master's in English. I taught high school English for many years. And in those realms, like whether you like a book or not, doesn't really matter. You're, you're evaluating it. You're talking mm -hmm. about where it fits in the critical landscape, all of those things. And that's what I really like to do. And so when kind of turning this back around and looking at myself, I was like, maybe I need to 
loosen up a little bit and have a little bit more fun with just saying like, yeah, I really didn't like that book. Or yeah, I really love this book. But I still want others to be more rigorous in how they're writing about reviews too. So I'm kind of approaching it from like those two angles. And I really think that reviews can be just, I liked it or I didn't like it. And and why, of course, like we all want that fill in. But I think doing more literary criticism is evaluating the book for what it is. What is the author trying to do, especially maybe within a given context, like a genre context or in this historical moment we're in, like why mm-hmm. is this book trying to say what it's trying to say, those kinds of things. And I am not a professional book critic. I, I'm like a professional book person on the internet, <laughs> but I've been trying to review a lot more criticism, read more criticism, read more books about how to do that kind of criticism because I, I like aspire to it. And so I'm trying to let go of like what everybody else needs to do in terms of reviews on the internet. But that's what I'm thinking about for myself. But then does that make everybody capable of being a critic? I think no. I think being a critic is <laughs> sorry. Sorry. No, please. Means... I'm I, I think no also. Okay. But I want to hear what you think. Yeah. So I mean I think that right, we have that phrase like everyone's a critic, right? Now that everyone has a platform, everyone can share their opinions. But I think that there's a difference between having an opinion and being a critic. And I think maybe some of my reviews touch into more of that criticism realm. And a lot of my reviews are just me sharing my opinion. I do think that that level of criticism, when when thinking about it as like an art form, like a type of writing and thinking in and of itself, it does take work. It It takes like putting the time in to understand more of the context of a book. Not mm-hmm. everyone wants to do that, and that is totally fine. But yeah, I think I I I don't want to make it like an ivory tower thing where it's like you have to have gone to school for X, Y, and Z to be a critic. But I do think it takes a certain amount of effort and time to mm-hmm. do criticism rather than just sharing an opinion. Yeah, so many things are like swirling through my mind. I am not a critic. I am a reviewer. (laughs) And even in that space, I am only a positive reviewer, which Mm. I know rubs bookstagram the (laughs) wrong way, you know, 47 times. Like I get it (laughs) because I almost always, there have been some exceptions when I felt like it was really important for me to share why I didn't like a book or something, why it didn't work for me. There've been some cultural books that I felt like I did want to sort of take that stand publicly. But for the most part, like 95% of what I post online publicly for the world to see are books I loved, books I am recommending. And that's a really broad range of reviewing. Like I will be like, I love this because it was just fun or I love this. I really want more people to read it. All kinds of reasons that I am sharing a positive review. Like this is something I loved. My book episodes here are almost exclusively best books lately. They're the best books that I have read. This drives some people crazy because if everything is five stars, then 
what's what's the rating system mean? I certainly don't give everything five stars, and I do on my Patreon share everything every single month. I do a reading roundup of everything that I've read, and I definitely don't love everything that I've read. So that is a place where I finally kind of have just in the last couple of years let myself say negative things about <laughs> books. Yeah. But I think as an author, there's a karma to it. I feel like very nervous to criticize other people's work. Now, I think if I was doing it in the way you're describing, like I think if I was doing it a little more intellectually, I would feel maybe more comfortable. But like you said, that takes a lot of work. That's like a whole job. Yeah, and, oh, totally. Which is not what my job is. Right. And so <laughs> it's easier for me to review and just being like, hey, I loved this one. And sometimes like in an Instagram caption, first of all, Instagram caption is just not enough characters to do a true like like critique of a book. But sometimes I do try to throw in a sentence or two that is more meaningful than just like, yay, five stars. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that there's really like value, a lot of value in in both because I do think like one of the great aspects about Bookstagram and just everyone having an opinion on the internet and finding your space for that is we find kind of like-minded people who become trusted recommendation sources. And I, I think being a recommendation source is a really important role in any sort of like art or entertainment arena. Yeah. And there's, a, and then I think like literary criticism or cultural criticism is more unpacking the piece of art saying what it's trying to do why it matters does it matter right now is it harmful in any way what is it trying to move us towards and i real i really like doing both like you said like if i were to write literary criticism of every single book i there's just no way there's just no way mm-hmm. i could do that it takes way way more time to do that kind of thing but i like i think the academic part of my brain likes engaging with that sometimes. Um, mm-hmm. And I also, I think that I really, you know, the more I do that, the more books I can appreciate, even if I don't always like them. I think the more I kind of engage with that level of thinking and critique, the more I'm able to say, like, I really see what this book was trying to do. And I think maybe it achieved it. But for X, Y, and Z reason, I didn't like it. And that it makes me happy as a reader because it's like expanded my appreciation for different genres or authors that I maybe wouldn't have said the same thing before. I would have just been like, oh, it's bad or I don't like it. I also think there's an element of tone to this. So Mm. like when I read actual literary criticism, and I don't mean like um, book length version of it, but like a a New York Times review, which can can also be a review. But if I, if I read a deeper dive, I'm usually irritated because it does feel like the ivory tower you just were describing. Totally. So then that makes me want to steer clear of all literary criticism, which I know is, is not true. I'm sure there are stuff that is out there that would be like more thoughtfully portrayed. I feel like I scratch that itch. This is just within myself and it's not a substitute for like academia in any way, <laughs> but I do scratch that itch in myself with book club. So the yes. book club that I run and then my real life book club that, you know, meets in person, like I feel like I get 
a broader view of the book when I hear other people's like what they didn't like about it or often like what they know about it culturally that I didn't know. Like they're bringing their own experience or their own knowledge from something that they've studied, an aspect of the book that I didn't know. So that's why I love book clubs. Like that's why I tell everybody to be at book clubs because I feel like that you're going to come away with a different appreciation of the book, even if you still don't like it. Or, or, you know, I love coming out of a book club meeting. Like at the beginning of my book club meetings, I always ask what their your rating for the book is at the beginning of the conversation and then what your rating is for the book at the end of the conversation just to see if it changes it. I love that. And a lot for a lot of people, it does change it or they may stick with their rating, but they're thinking about it differently. This is what I love about book clubs. It's again, that's not a substitution for academia, but I think just one of the frustrations of Bookstagram is this just drive by scroll of somebody giving a quick rating to something that was like somebody's life work. Totally. I know. That's why I don't use public star ratings. I, I just, I have a hard time unpacking the book I, I the way I want to. Like, here's what I think the author was trying to achieve. And they were commenting on this major universal experience, three stars. You know, I just like, I, and there's nothing wrong with doing star ratings. Like I don't want anybody else to stop using them if they, but I just have a hard time with, with that. I, I think your point about the, like the way criticism reads when we think about like, oh, I think it's especially about like, you know, book reviews in the New Yorker. I read them Mm. and I'm just like, I don't, maybe 15 years ago when I was in grad school, like these words meant something to me. And now these words have no meaning. (laughs) And, and I think that that's part of what I like to do in my newsletter too, is like literary criticism can be really accessible. It really is just like asking, what is the book trying to do? Where does it succeed? Where does it fail? And how is it part of a context, like genre, time period, in terms of the author's work? It can be that simple, but it is totally, it's, it's, I feel like often critics are talking to other critics with their writing, you know? Yes. They're, they're not, trying to out impress each other. Yes. They're not actually talking to the reader. And sometimes you read these reviews or this literary criticism and you're like, I'm confused. Did you like the book? Should I read it? <laughs> you know? Yeah. And and so I I want to in my own writing and thinking about books be doing both the like accessible and have it all be accessible and just that little bit deeper that I just really have fun with doing. I've been listening to this podcast lately. I think there are only two episodes out, but it's out from The New Yorker and it's about criticism and it's one literary critic interviewing other literary critics it's called the critic and her publics now you could just tell that like this is like right because it's like her publics what does that even mean you're like the her minions i don't know it's like you don't just have one public you have multiple publics that i have no idea what it means they did not explain it in the (laughs) and i listened to it and it feels like being back in a grad school class and I'm just like this has this doesn't have much meaning to me anymore I, I'm continuing to listen to it because I think it stretches me and I like that feeling of being stretched but it also reminds me of of what I don't want to do like where I don't want to veer into that land of 
just jargon that has no real meaning and isn't helpful to mm-hmm. <laughs> anyone actually reading your review. This conversation is just sort of reminding me, first of all, how, let me pack myself on the back, how far I have come on the internet because I used to be so judgy about how you should review on the internet, how you should share books, how you should talk about books, the certain type of books you should be reading. I had lots of judgments 10 years ago or whatever. And now, even as we're having this discussion, I'm realizing that there are ways to talk about books. There's so many ways and they're all available to us, actually. Like if you prefer just a drive-by scroll, five stars, go read this. That is enough for a lot of people. If you prefer a deeper dive, that is available to you. If you prefer more of an academic take, or if you prefer more of like a fun, lighthearted, you know, here's my five faves kind of take, all of these, and then everything in between, all of these are available to us on the internet. And so it's just futile to get frustrated at the way that someone else is doing it, quote unquote, wrong. There is no wrong here. And so I do think that you do a great job in your newsletter of sort of meeting in the middle of those things. It's not like unapproachably academic, but it's definitely much more than a drive-by scroll. I think you are so good at that. And I will link to her newsletter so that everyone can go find it if they want to. It's not every day that you find a product that you truly love and want to shout about from the rooftops. Well, friends, I have found something that I am genuinely excited to share with you today, and that is Born Shoes. Born Shoes are made with the best top quality leather with functional stitching and flexibility. They are lightweight, but they're also supportive. They are great for all casual occasions, extremely comfortable, and especially good for travel. The brand recently gifted me a pair of the Ithaca style sandals. Of course, they are beautiful. The footbed has extra foam for added comfort and with a slight heel for lift. I am positive that I could walk all over London in this pair of shoes, just like I did in my Born sandals last summer. Born Shoes offers sandals, flats, boots, and heels in several styles and color choices. Take comfort in Born Shoes. Every season, they make high-quality shoes that feel as good as they look. With artistic touches, unparalleled craftsmanship, and exquisite materials, Born designs shoes to satisfy the demands of every lifestyle. Go to bornshoes.com for a 15% discount plus free ground shipping on all full-price shoes when you use my promo code TELL. That's born, B-O-R-N, shoes, S-H-O-E-S, dot com and use promo code TELL, T-E-L-L, for 15% off and free shipping, available exclusively to our listeners for a limited time. With sunshine, outdoor activities, and so many fun things to do outside, it is impossible not to enjoy all of these good weather days up ahead. Of course, we all know that more sun and fun means more sweating and, yes, more odor. That's why I'm excited to tell you about Lumi. Lumi is the first of its kind in the full-body deodorant world and is seriously safe to use on any and every part of your body. It was created by an OBGYN who saw firsthand how regular body odor was being misdiagnosed and mistreated. I especially love that Lumi deodorant is baking soda and paraben-free. It is also pH-balanced for safe use on all areas of your body. You can choose from a variety of fresh scents like clean tangerine, lavender sage, and toasted coconut. 
Lumi's starter pack is perfect for new customers. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, cream tube deodorant, two free products of your choice, like a mini body wash or deodorant wipes, and free shipping. As a special offer for listeners, new customers get $5 off a Lumi starter pack with code U at lumideodorant.com. That equates to 40% off your starter pack when you visit Lumi, L-U-M-E, deodorant, D-E-O-D-O-R-A-N-T, Dot com and use code U, Y-O-U. We are going to jump into the best books that we have read lately. So I do want to give listeners a bit of a context. They're used to hearing my book recommendations all the time. I typically like darker work. I don't read a lot of light and fluffy. And sometimes, I don't know, my, my reading tastes have changed over the years, but that is one thing that has stayed a little bit consistent. I tend to like literary fiction. I tend to like a lot of personal development. I'm just giving like a broad overview. My favorite author of all time is Stephen King. I also love Elizabeth Strout. Like these are just sort of my general, which is you would think would be the opposite of Stephen King, but I don't know. I love them both equally. Maybe not equally, but I love them both. (laughs) So that's my overview of my taste. Can you give an overview of your taste? Is that too big of an ask? No, no, I think I I think I can. I mean, generally I also enjoy literary fiction. I don't read a ton of fluffy stuff either, but when I do find like something fun and fluffy that makes me really happy, I enjoy, I try it. <laughs> I tend to like I'd say introspective, character-driven stories, and I also really enjoy books that are like structurally driven. We always talk about how books are either plot driven or character driven, but I love a book that's driven by its structure and its its writing and and what the author's trying to do with prose and and style. So like Ruth Ozeki is one of my favorite authors, Kazuo Ishiguro who wrote The Remains of the Day and Never Let Me Go. I love Louise Erdrich. Yeah, those are a few of my faves. And Jane Austen. I host a classics podcast, so I also have to, of course, say I love Jane Austen. I love Passing by Nella Larson is one of my favorite classics. So those are a few. Well, that makes sense then why I love following you because we don't have the exact (laughs) same taste, but like it aligns. It aligns. Yes. I love seeing what you're reading. I also like that you tend to read things that I don't or like we read different things but it's sort of in the same world mm-hmm. and so I do like always seeing what you have brought to share and I saw the books that you brought to share today and I was like oh great I haven't read any of these so oh, good oh that's so fun <laughs> which is perfect so why don't you go first now for the listeners I do want to say for my best books lately episodes there are no rules here you can bring backlist you can bring classics you can bring buzzy you know, books that everyone's talking about right now. I just want to hear, and this is true when I ask you on Instagram, you know, when I, I love people to share the best books that they've read lately. And there's just no, no boundaries to that because I, I understand there's like a place to be like the best. And I do this sometimes like the best books I've read this year, published this year. Like I understand why we do that, but I also like don't want to be trapped by new books or a certain category or whatever. I just want to hear from everyone the best books that they have read lately. So what's the first book that you want to share with everybody? So my first one is very backlist. It's the book that we actually most recently covered on the Novel Pairings podcast, The Custom of the Country by Edith Wharton. Have you read any Edith Wharton? 
No. And I saw that y'all were reading that. And I was like, where'd that come from? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So this was like not one of Edith Wharton's best known works. That's what I mean. I was literally like, what? Yeah. Okay. So, okay. So here's where it came from. So first we were going to read the Buccaneers because there's that Buccaneers show that just came out on Apple TV, but the Buccaneers, Edith Wharton only wrote half of it. And then somebody else finished it. And we're like, eh, I don't know if we want to do that. Then we learned that Sophia Coppola had written a script for a five-part miniseries of The Custom of the Country, which was supposed to start Florence Pugh. And she was working out this deal with Apple TV. And then they canceled because they said that the main character was too unlikable and they didn't think it would be able to reach an audience. What? Yes. So we were like, okay, we have to know what this book is about. (laughs) And let me tell you, this woman is highly unlikable. (laughs) I still very much want to see this come to life via Sofia Coppola's vision, hopefully with Florence Pugh. But this is not a case of like, oh, you think she's unlikable, but really she's ambitious and like, no, she's she's a mess. <laughs> she's like truly unlikable. Not like Olive Kittredge, which like no. lovably grumpy. No, she's not a curmudgeon. She's not grumpy. She she is deeply unlikable. So her <laughs> but so but you cannot look away. So her name is Undine Sprague, which is just a fantastic name. She was named after the uh curling iron that her grandfather invented, which like earned their family all of this money and she is a young woman in I think in her like late teens or early 20s she comes from a pretty wealthy family but a midwestern family and they move to New York City so that she can like enter society and it's about her looking for a husband who could keep her in the lifestyle that she wants and also get her access to like all the right parties and the social groups she wants to be a part of and but she makes all these missteps because she doesn't understand the society at all. So she, you know, she gets married to this guy who has a very like respectable family, and she doesn't realize that like the wealth, the money is gone. So she has entry mm. into this like upper echelons of society, but not the way she envisioned. And so she makes moves to figure out how to get the life that she wants, and she does not care who she steps on. Along the way, okay. <laughs> she's so she is ambitious in that way, but she's like totally vapid. She like she doesn't know what she wants until she sees somebody else who has it, and then she's like, "That is that is the life that I need." So she, I mean, she gets in all kinds of trouble. There are like jaw dropping moments in this book, and it came out in 1913. Like this book is it's old. It's a classic. But it's but still so relevant. Like it just feels real housewivesy to me. Exactly. That is exactly how I would describe it. It's like real housewives of the gilded age. <laughs> and it's so juicy and you just cannot look away from this. And it is so relevant. Like it's really about like American consumerism. And mm. it really we found it to be very relevant to like being on Instagram where you're like perfectly content. And then you see what somebody else's house looks like and you're like, well. Now I want that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I didn't know that I wanted it, but now I see it and I do. So I, it's it's fantastic. The writing is great. It reads very quickly for a classic. And it's it's both fun and juicy and I think saying a lot of really important things. I was going to ask if it's long because sometimes when I hear it's a classic, I'm like, okay, but what's my investment here? 
It's like, I think it's like 400 pages long. So it is. Oh, so it's normal. Yeah. It's, it's not a super long classic, but it is like, it, it's chunky. I think you would like it. (laughs) I love that. I love that you recommended it because I hadn't even heard of it. And I don't even think I've read Edith Wharton. Is that a problem? No, that's not a problem. So I, (laughs) I liked Edith Wharton before this. She actually has a short story that I, that's also very Real Housewivesy. It's called Roman Fever. If anyone wants to read a short piece and find out if they like Edith Wharton before they commit to a novel, that's what I would recommend. But her novels that I read hadn't like been particular favorites of mine. Mm-hmm. This one is by far and away my my favorite now. The, the other ones are a little bit darker and bleaker. And this this one has its moments. It's not like all fast paced and fun, but it's just more dramatic and juicy. Okay. <laughs> okay. I love this. We're just going to take a real different turn. Okay, my great. First one. I'm actually going to work backwards from a book I just finished like day before yesterday or something back towards the books that I read sort of the end of 2023. So this is me sort of just talking through the best books that I've read lately. And in a completely weird turn of events, I don't know that this has ever happened on the show. They're all fiction. Ooh. That has never happened. I always bring something nonfiction-y because I read nonfiction every single day. It's part of my morning routine. And it's not that I haven't read good things. I have. But when I was like really narrowing the best books I've read lately, they were all fiction. And several of them, not all, maybe all, were published in 2023, which again is not because I love a backlist. I don't know. This is just what happened. And so I'm excited to tell you all about these books because this first one I'm going to start with that I just finished over the holiday weekend, I I read it mostly. It's not only a five-star book for me, it's with one big exception, which I will get to. It almost is one of my like favorite books ever, maybe. Like it's, and that list is big. I have, I have dozens of books on my best books ever kind of list. This one would have made it, but for one thing, and it's The Bee Sting by Paul Murray. Okay, listen, this book, it it came out in June, 2023. It is long. It's 656 pages. So it took me a while. It took me a couple of weeks, which is a long time for me to, to read a novel. It was on like the New York times, you know, top 10 books of 2023. It was shortlisted for the Booker prize. Like it was, you know, it got a lot of accolades at the end of last year. And several people actually pinged me to be like, I think you would like this one. And for whatever reason, I didn't pick it up immediately. Like, I don't know if it was the title or the cover or sort of just the description. It's a, a dysfunctional family drama, basically, which I typically like. But I don't know. I just didn't pick it up until this year. And I thought it was so fascinating. You know, when you were reading books, what I posted midway through the book, what I posted that I kind of want to say here is that I'm having the best reading experience when I'm reading this. And the difference between that and like, this is a good book. Like Those are two different sort of phrases. Like I was like, I'm just enjoying myself every time I am reading this. And that's just not true with all books. We read books for lots of reasons, like to learn or whatever. I don't know. And 
I just read so many books that I don't actively think like, I'm just loving the experience I'm having while reading this book. It really just got my brain kind of firing on a lot of different things. So the the quickie premise is about the Barnes family. Dickie, his wife, Amelda, their sons, Cass and PJ. And Dickie inherited a car dealership, basically, from his father. And it is going under. It is sinking. He has, he has run this dealership into the ground. And so the, the family is really struggling. The teenage daughter is struggling. The wife is super struggling with this change in status socially and financially. And so then you sort of go backwards in the book to be like, how did we get here? Because this is about so much more than just a failing business. This is about family, you know, dynamics. This is about loss and grief and favoritism, you know, among children's and siblings. There's some, you know, what not mystical and not really magical. It's not really magical elements, but there's just some like, almost like some, uh, like a psychic chimes in occasionally. Uh-huh. Like there's, you know, some past family secrets. Like it's a dysfunctional family drama, but of like the top tier of that, not like the gossipy thing of that, but like this, like a, this is a very literary book in, of that. I feel like of that genre. And I just loved it. The characters aren't super likable by any means, but I just loved the story it's long, so there's lots of like lots of kind of tangents of this happened that and maybe that is relevant or not, but it's just I felt like it was like a saga, like you were in this family's life. And this book would have made like I would put it on my one of my favorite books of all time, except for the ending. Oh, I was wondering what, what you were gonna say. Okay. The ending I can't give any spoilers here, but the ending is hard. <laughs> I don't want to say any, I don't, I really, there are so many words I can say here that I don't want to say. I thought I understood what happened at the ending, but I wasn't sure. And I saw like a Goodreads review that said to, to Google what you think happened at the ending, like whatever. So I did and a Reddit thread came up and there's all these different theories because the ending is, I don't want to say ambiguous. It can be interpreted as ambiguous. Yeah. It Let's say the ending has interpretation. There's a lot of interpretation. So I thought I kind of knew what happened, but then when I fell upon this Reddit thread that was unpacking all these different theories of what might have happened at the end, I was bummed. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's so wait, fair. <laughs> so I, but I hate to say that because I don't want to discourage people from reading it, even though this this book is a is a little bit harsh. This is for sensitive readers. I don't think I've ever recommended anything that was for sensitive readers. So <laughs> fine, know that about me. But I just loved this book, and. The ending is hard. I don't know what else to say. You've read this one, right? I I did, and I loved it too. I I think it's exceptional. I mean, just the way that you think you know who one of the characters is, and then you get a different perspective, and you you're like, oh my gosh, I'm seeing them in this whole new new light. And I I love that kind of writing, and I think he's just kind of a master of it. All of the characters, like you said, not particularly likable, but I felt like I understood all of them mm-hmm. and understood how sometimes they were trying to do better for each other and how sometimes they couldn't do better for each other. I, I thought it was really good, but you're not wrong about the ending. <laughs> the ending is hard. I will also say it's sort of interesting 
in a novel that is this family saga, like I've described, and it's not that there there's some loss and grief, like I said, in the there's hard things that happen throughout this book for sure, and there's bad choices abound. Oh yes, but you're reading it as a normal story, and then I will say the last. I was reading on Kindle, so I'm not sure, but maybe the last 50-ish pages or something, he builds up so much tension in a couple of different scenarios. There's a couple of things that are happening at the end as we're we're building toward the very, very end that are just like so stressful. Like I was like, oh no, are we in a thriller novel now? (laughs) Yeah. It was very stressful. And I liked it. I liked that turn of events, but it was a lot. It was a lot. Yeah. Yeah. But I loved it. Like, I loved it so much that I was just like, I can't, I haven't read a book like this in a while where I thought, oh, this is, this is going on my all time list. And so that's what I wanted to start with. It's called The Beasting by Paul Murray. It's a lot, you guys. I love it. (laughs) I second it. What's your next one? My next one is The Laughter by Sonora Jaw. This one, it, it also came out last year. I think it was relatively under the radar. I didn't see it around all that much, but then it was long listed for the Aspen Words Literary Prize. Mm, this is, which you're involved in. Yeah. I, I read for their reading committee a few years ago, and now I just do a little bit of like freelancing for them in terms of like promotion. And so they asked me if I would like to interview Sonora, and I hadn't read the book yet. And I was like, sure, let me read the book and, and talk to her. And it, I really, really liked it. It, I can't say I enjoyed reading it, <laughs> but it was really, really good. So, okay, let me fill some details in so you understand what I mean there. So this is a book told through the perspective of a white middle-aged English professor named Oliver Harding. And he is... I think they're in Washington, Washington State, and he's obsessed with, like in lust with, for sure, this younger law professor at his university. She's Pakistani. She's Muslim. And the way he thinks about her is so objectifying and Mm. creepy. And you're, it, we're in his head the whole time. This is why it's like not a particularly enjoyable reading experience because you're like, mm-hmm. get me out of this man's head. But the way she does it is so smart because, first of all, she breaks things up occasionally with Ruhaba. This is the the woman's name. Her emails, so we get to see like who she is outside of his perspective, mm-hmm. and then she'll have these moments where you know, you'll start to feel like some sympathy for Oliver. And you're like, oh, he's just like a lonely guy. And then like three pages later, you're like, oh my God, stop thinking that. Like, (laughs) so, so there's just a lot of, I wouldn't even say like balance to his character, but there's complexity like to who he is because there's complexity to, to who all people are. Right. And, and she really does a good job developing that without ever like letting him off the hook for anything. And with still reminding you of the way his views are going to contribute to calamity as the Mm -hmm. book goes on, you know from the beginning that something bad has happened. And he is kind of writing his version of the story and filling it all in to tell you you his side of, of the events. 
And so it's propulsive in that way where you're like, you know that something bad has happened and you start getting hints throughout, which I like because I don't like it when an author completely withholds something from me and then I feel like I'm just reading to find out what they're withholding. Mm. Like she puts in enough details. It just really feels authentic to how Oliver as a character would be thinking about and telling this story. But you can't stop reading because, number one, you want to get out of this guy's head. And number two, you want to find out what happened. And I just felt like the book is so urgent and it's saying so much, but it's also just a really fascinating character study, both of the narrator and of Ruhaba. And and it's really her story, but filtered through this this guy. Mm-hmm. Really, really well done. Um this does not sound like a book that would be titled The Laughter. Is that what you called it? <laughs> that is what I called it. <laughs> and there, that was like the one question that I really wanted to ask Sonora that we didn't get time to talk about. But it definitely shows up throughout. So there's uh, there's a, um, an epigraph that has the laughter as a phrase in it. And then at the end, there is laughter. I think it goes back to, have you ever heard that Margaret Atwood saying of like, men's greatest fear is that women will laugh at them and women's greatest fear is that men will kill them. Mm. She doesn't cite that, but that feels to be part of what this book is exploring. Oh, I'm sorry. That was really heavy. I know. (laughs) The Laughter by Sonora (laughs) Jaw. It's a great book. (laughs) No, it does sound like a great book. I knew you were going to bring really good to talk about today. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Again, we're going to swing a little bit. Actually, we're not even swinging as far. I mean, the book I'm going to talk about also has lots of tension. And, um, well, you didn't say that this happens in yours, but definitely in the book that I'm about to talk about, there is some violence. I read at the beginning of this year, it was one of my first books of 2024, All the Sinners Bleed by S.A. Cosby. Have you read this one? No, I haven't read any essay, Cosby. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. So I pre-ordered this one. It came out also randomly in June of 2023, same time that the Beasting came out. This is this must be my theme. But I pre-ordered it because I so enjoyed Razorblade Tears, which came out a couple of years ago. And I know a lot of other people liked his book even before that, Blacktop Wasteland. Like he has a really great fan base. Razorblade Tears was one of my favorite books a few years ago. So I automatically pre-ordered this new one, All the Sinners Bleed. S.A. Cosby is 
actually he's a fun follow on Twitter. If anyone is over there, he like posts some really great stuff, but his books have a lot of violence (laughs) and graphic violence. And so, you know, if that's going to be hard for you, definitely he's not going to be someone to read. I had never watched this show, but when I was talking so much about Razorblade Tears, a lot of people likened it to like Sons of Anarchy, which I guess also has a lot of sort of violence. I, again, have never watched that show, but just to give some sort of context, All the Sinners Bleed, I didn't love as much as I loved Razorblade Tears, but I was glad I read it. He is a great writer. He's really sort of creative in in plot and it feels both of these books feel um, currently culturally relevant, but also sort of timeless in their stories, like, which I like the premise is that Titus crown. That's our main character. He is the first black sheriff in this small town, sort of his hometown. He comes back to where his dad lives. He had lost his mom years before. So he's sort of struggling with, still some grief and all the things that happen when we return to our hometowns, right? And right after he has been elected to sheriff, there is a school shooting where a student kills a a teacher. And then that student, as you know, he's like sort of trying to escape. This happens at the very beginning. While he's trying to escape the school after he's shot the teacher, he is killed by, by policemen who have been called to the scene. So that's sort of the first kind of inciting event that happens at the very beginning. And then as they are investigating why the student would do this and, it, you know, then a lot of things come out that there might be some very deeply held secrets in this town that there is possibly a serial killer, not the student. And there's a lot of violence. I was reading this book and thinking constantly of True Detective season one. Mm. So if you watch True Detective season one, which is years old now, it had some similar elements in that the murders that are taking place, the the scenes that are set, it's like hard to talk about, but like the scenes that are set have a lot of symbolism to them a lot of sort of like religious imagery and some things. This is what happened in True Detective season one. And this is a lot of what's happening in All the Sinners Bleed. There's also some things happening in the town that you don't know as a reader if they are or are not directly related to the murders. Like there's some, like a white supremacy group that is sort of rising up in response to what's happening in the nation and also, you know, having this black sheriff. So he's sort of Titus, our main character, sort of dealing with all these different elements. There's also a a kind of podcasting tangent that happens, like a true crime podcaster comes to town. So there's, there's like a few very culturally relevant things happening at once in this book. I just liked it. I just liked, I like reading essay Cosby. I like books like this. A caveat here that I will say is it felt like, I did not get this in Razorblade Tears, but in All the Sinners Bleed, it felt like there were maybe some moments of preachiness Mm. when I would really prefer that the story be the message. (laughs) 
or the lesson or whatever, if you are putting meaning into the plot like this versus like having a character give a speech or a lecture or something, you know? And so it felt like that, that felt heavy handed to me because what's happening in the plot is making this point. I don't know that we needed some of this sort of, it just felt heavy handed to, to add in the dialogue of it all. It just, I, I was like, eh, you know, and so that to me is the type of thing that takes a book down a notch a little bit because it feels condescending to the reader sometimes. I don't think S.A. Cosby is any, in any way condescending to the reader. He's a really good writer. But it just feels like we didn't need that to understand what was happening. Yeah. So I, that's one of, sort of my only caveats to the book. But otherwise, I, I really liked it. I sometimes wonder with things like that if part of it is like the edit the editor being like, well, you have a, a wider audience now, so let's add a little bit more in here to, you know, I, I I wonder when I see things like that from authors where I don't expect it, if there's if there's somebody else kind of moving them in that direction. Yeah, if it felt like required for yeah. a broader audience. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe. I mean, yeah, I don't know either, but I was like, oh, this feels like... Yeah, like I don't need to be told this mm-hmm. necessarily. Like I'm getting it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not a subtle book, you know, like it's not. So, <laughs> <That's a> good <laughs> point. <laughs> so that is one of the only sort of things. But other than that, I and and I have actually encountered that in a couple of books post 2020. I've talked about this a little bit on the show, where I feel like when there is some some very sort of modern elements and it is maybe over explained. Mm-hmm. I've, I've now encountered this, like, I think this is like my third or fourth time to encounter this in a novel. And so, yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe there is a reason for it, but I still really liked the book. It is, he is graphically violent, even for me. Now, the difference here that I will give for people who might've read Razorblade Tears is that in that book, you are in the violence, like you are in the scene where the violence is happening, which was which is graphic in all the sinners bleed, which is the book that I'm talking about. It is mostly after the fact you are stumbling upon the violence that has occurred. It's still very descriptive, but that is kind of a little bit of a different vibe. I just, I think he's creative and I think he's doing some really good work, especially for such a broad audience. He's a very popular author. Mm -hmm. And I think that he's doing some really important work. I will continue to, by his books because it because it has these elements like i'm saying it has these cultural elements that are really important th- points to make but it's also like i mean it's a crime thriller like you got to find out who did it <laughs> yeah that's very compelling you know that's like makes you want to keep reading it was hard to put down so there's just a lot of good things that make this a book that i am recommending all the sinners bleed by s.a cosby i want to read it i you know what i didn't know that the main character's name was titus Titus Andronicus is one of my favorite Shakespeare plays. <laughs> oh, really? And it sounds like when you're describing the plot, it sounds like maybe there's some connection there. Not like a retelling, but I, like probably he chose that name for a reason. So it okay, makes me well, all the more Cicera, curious. This is the difference between a critic and a reviewer. <laughs> a reviewer makes no immediate <laughs> Relation to Shakespeare. I'm just like, isn't it good? And then you are like, oh, this sounds like a Shakespeare reference. I'm like, fantastic. This is why I'm glad that we get to talk. 
many ways to read and many reasons to read. I'll report back if I do read it, if I still think that. <laughs> okay. Okay, good. Okay. I'm going to go with a book that I just finished like this weekend, Best of Friends by Kamala Shamsi. Have you read this? Mm-hmm. I've not read it, but I've seen it. Okay. And she wrote Home Fire, which won the Women's Prize, which was, speaking of retellings, a retelling of Antigone, and I loved Home Fire. Best of Friends, I think I didn't love as much, but I really liked it, and I really wanted to bring it to you, Laura, because it's a novel about friendship. Yes. And Kamala Shamsi said that she wanted to write a book about friendship for a long time. She talked about like how, you know, friendship is treated in novels as like peripheral often. Mm-hmm. And she really wanted to write a book that centered it. And it took her a while to come up with her idea. But but once she did, she like she wrote it immediately. So the first half of the book, it's two girls, Mariam and Zara. And they live in Karachi, Pakistan, and they're they're best friends. They've been friends since they were four. They like know everything about each other. They have pretty different lives. Like Mariam is very wealthy, like has like a guard, you know, at the gate of her family's estate. She's set to inherit her family's business. Zara is really, really smart, like wants to go ab- abroad to university. She's kind of got like a philosopher's heart. And they just see the world in different ways, but they're the, the best of friends. And there's an event that happens that I kind of was like, oh, is this going to like tear them apart? And it didn't, but it did change the trajectory of their lives. That's kind of mm-hmm. at the end of part one. And then part two, they're in their 40s. So it fast forward 30 years. They're both living in London. They're both very successful career women. They've both ended up maybe in places that you wouldn't have expected, but you can see how based on what you knew about them as teenagers. And their careers, there's a little bit of like an antagonistic relationship between their careers. Like one's kind of like mm. a tech entrepreneur and one is like a civil rights crusader. And so like sometimes, you know, their career ambitions, but heads, even though they've remained friends. And then, of course, this event that happened when they were teenagers kind of resurfaces and conflict arises in their friendship. But it was totally different than what I expected. And I loved how central their careers were to this conflict. Like, not at all about, like, a romantic conflict or, you know, anything like that. But just how it was about their careers but not just their careers, like their values. And the book jacket says that she wanted to explore like what's more important in in friendship, principles or loyalty. And I really feel like that is what she did, was like asking that question and not providing a clear answer. I thought it was really, really interesting. I really liked it. I think it would be a great book club pick, just so much to discuss. Yeah. When was this published? In, I think this was 2021 or maybe 2022. So it's just a couple years old. This sounds so up my alley. I Yeah. Have you read the Neapolitan novels? Did you read Elena Ferrante, My Brilliant Friend? I have not read them. I know I need to. I mean, they're, well, that's, that's a, it's like a project. It's a commitment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but 
I, there's some similarities in what you're saying, like their childhood best friends and then and then flash forward to what is conflicting about their adult relationship and lives. So, and I loved those novels. So this sounds like it would be right up my alley. I think so. I mean, I, I, I don't know if it's like a book you will absolutely love, but I think she's thinking about so many things that you like thinking about and mm-hmm. it would be interesting to see what you think of of that. Tell us the title and author again. Best of Friends by Kamala Shamsi. Okay, yes. I'm putting all of yours on my on my list. <laughs> um I'm about to talk about one of the weirdest books that I have read. <laughs> oh great. I love a weird book. <laughs> well not only is it weird, it's it's possible this word is completely overused. I don't care. It's quirky. <laughs> it's it is I was I was so surprised by this book, which longtime listeners know that books that make it on my like year end lists and everything, they're always there's always an element of surprise to them. I have to be surprised by a book. I and this this book delivered. I don't even know if I can say it's the one of the best books I've read lately. It's just I have to talk about this. One. It's a superlative in some way. <laughs> it really it's a it's a notable book I've read lately. How about that? <laughs> and it was the last book I read in 2023. So I was literally reading it. I finished it like just before midnight. I was on a family trip and I was like <laughs> I like was laughing out loud. It's Big Swiss by Jen Began. Have you read this? No, I haven't. <laughs> But I, the cover is so striking. And <laughs> this book, I bought it on Kindle because someone recommended it on Twitter. Like, I'm, y'all, I'm the easiest pushover. You don't even know. Like, I'll be like, <laughs> oh, okay. Like, I don't know. I went and bought it. And, you know, I also don't like to read very much about a book before I read it. I really want to sort of form my own opinions. So I, I, I have no idea why, what was happening when I chose this. And then when I opened it and started reading it, I don't know. Okay. It is about, and this was published in 2023. So it was just, you know, it's about a year old and it is about our main character, Greta. She is like kind of broke. She's sort of like living as a roommate with a friend who sort of better off in circumstances but like you just get right away that like Greta is a little bit of a sort of an Eeyore if you will you know she's just not she's not thriving in her life and she takes a job as a transcriptionist for a sex therapist in this small town where you know it's just not a big community so she is transcribing for this sex therapist who is working on a book or something working on a a project so wants his sessions with his patients transcribed so that is her job so she's obviously listening to people in their community at sex therapy <laughs> and she kind of gets like a girl crush on one of the patients that she just names in her head because she's not allowed to know as a transcriptionist she's not allowed to know their like real names or their identifying details except for obviously what they're talking about in sex therapy So she kind of gets a crush on one of the patients just in her mind as she transcribes that she nicknames Big Swiss. (laughs) Well, then, and this is not a spoiler, this is what happens in the book. Then she is like in in a coffee shop in town. And because she's listening to them all the time, she recognizes her voice. So she has a really distinctive voice. She has an accent. She's not, you know, from their area. So 
she realizes this is Big Swiss in the coffee shop. And against all ethics and moral principles, (laughs) she strikes up a conversation with her (laughs) and gets, you know, into a a friendship relationship with this woman who does not know that she is a transcriber (laughs) of her sex therapy sessions. So uh, the complications, the complications. (laughs) So this book is very R-rated, beyond R-rated. Like this has obviously what's being discussed by different people in sex therapy and then also in their own lives, things happen. So you absolutely cannot be a sensitive reader in this realm, in that particular realm for this book. It is, it is. Very descriptive. (laughs) And also, you're just like, I can't believe I'm reading this. Not because it's sexually descriptive. I mean, part of that maybe, but also just because you're like, I I just can't believe that somebody wrote this story. (laughs) (laughs) This is why it was so surprising to me. And I, it's funny. It's like laugh out loud funny if you're, if you're open to the type of humor that it is clearly. It's laugh out loud funny. It does, as the book goes on, like tend into zany. Like it does start to get like absurd. Mm, okay. You know, like where you're just like, well, this, this is ridiculous. You know, this is like ridiculous. I was along for the ride. I was fine with it. But I could see that that is like some people are like, I mean, this just gets cuckoo bananas, which it does. So you just have to sort of suspend all disbelief and just, you know, and then keep reading. It's It's just crazy, this book. And so I just don't read very many books, like even Shark Heart, which was my favorite books of last year, which is also like a very unbelievable magical realism kind of premise. Big Swiss is not this. There's no magic into it. It's just so silly. Shark Heart is very earnest in its, the absurdity of, of the plot. <laughs> Big Swiss is not earnest. Like this book is so crazy. I don't even, I just keep using words like zany and crazy. Like I just was like, on this book, I don't even know. Like when I finish it, it's definitely one of those books where you finish it and you're like, how am I supposed to write this? Yeah. I, mean, <laughs> I also, it is so explicit. I also didn't even put it on Instagram or, or anything public like that. Be- I mean, the show is public, but I didn't put it where you would be drive by scrolling it. Because I was like, this is, you have to know, let me please tell you that this book is not for everyone. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) No, that makes total sense. Because sometimes, yeah, when you're just like looking through Instagram, you're like, oh, I saw Laura posted this book. But then I see the book at the store and I don't really think about it. So yeah, that's that's wise. No, I I have learned not to do that. Like I can't just post something without, that needs a disclaimer like this one does. Um, Because people will just, yeah, they'll just start it and be like, what what are we doing here? Yeah. (laughs) It is so crazy, but it was so notable that I, again, the element of surprise, I was just like, I just, I just have to talk about this with somebody. But then also it's so explicit that who are you going to talk about it with? It's like, <laughs> like, please do not pick this book for your book club. Please do not. You will, you will not, no one will be able to say anything. <laughs> I want to read it. I've been, I've wanted to read it and I just, I don't know why I haven't picked it up. Maybe that, maybe because I'm like always reading to like recommend things. And I'm like, eh, I don't know if I have room in my No, my you TBR. can't recommend this one. <laughs> because you're just like, oh no. But then I but now here I am talking about it and giggling like a child. But anyway, it, I'm still glad that I was able to to bring it to the show today. 
All right. My next one, my only nonfiction, is Run Towards the Danger by Sarah Polly. So Sarah Polly was a child actress. And if you are Canadian, you probably know that. <laughs> I think she's like beloved by Canada. She was in this show as a as a kid called The Road to Avonlea, which was like an Anne of Green Gables spinoff. Mm. I don't. Mm-hmm. Are you familiar with that? I, I've heard of that, okay. but you know, Anna Green Gables is like not my jam. Yeah. Okay. Same. <laughs> so, okay. anyways, Sarah Polly, she was in that as a child, and she's stayed in the film industry now as a writer and director. And she directed the movie Women Talking, which came out I think last year or maybe two years ago. I think it was last that, year. And that was based off of Marion Tays. Tays. Yes. Okay, I loved Women Talking, but it is. It is for a particular type of reader. Absolutely. But I will say, Miriam Taves, like, um, she, people should read her. Fight Night is so good. It's it's very different from women talking. They're not, not all of her books are as, like, heady and dark and bleak. Okay, wait. Talking. I'm glad you said that because I've had Fight Night in hardcover on my shelf for, like, three years now or so. Oh, it's so and, good. Okay, I should read it because it's short. I don't yeah. know why I haven't. Oh, it's, oh, it's so good. I love okay. that book. Okay. So, but this Sarah Polly, she wrote this memoir. It's a memoir and essays, which I tend to really like because I, I love when, you know, when an author can really, in terms of their memoirs, like pull, you do this, Laura, <laughs> like tell you a concise story, but there's still a thread woven throughout the entire book. Like I just, I really enjoy that. I, and thank you. you well, you're welcome. And she, she had a concussion at one point in her life and she was doing all the right things like, you know, being in a dark room, like avoiding anything strenuous, all of this. And she just was not improving, not improving. She finally saw a concussion specialist who told his advice was, quote, you need to run towards the danger. Like you need to start doing the things that are making you uncomfortable and pushing yourself. This is not to be construed as medical advice by me. <laughs> Please don't take our yes. medical advice. <laughs> this is just what her her specialist told her. But she like takes that as a as a metaphor to like really look at some of the traumas and experiences in her life that have shaped her and like run towards them and like passionately investigate them and how they made her who she is. So she there's a whole essay. I, I think this is the first one and it's lengthier about being playing Alice in a production of Alice in Wonderland, a stage production mm-hmm. of Alice in Wonderland when she was a teen and how like being a teenage girl and having to play like a child, like how much that kind of messed with her and everything she hated about being in that production and how it led her to hate acting. She has a lot in here about creativity and motherhood and, you know, wanting to be creative and just like having this gap in her life where she just absolutely could not be because she was so spent there is stuff in here about um, about sexual abuse she experienced in the the film industry, mm. and so lots of lots of triggers here as well. But she's just the way she writes is so like empathetic towards herself and towards her audience. I found it to be so relevant and relatable, even though my life is totally different from hers. She has this real gift of being able to really write about her singular experiences, but be pointing out larger issues that women face. It just really blew me away. And she's a really good writer. Like the way she weaves things together and 
literary references, especially in the Alice uh, in Wonderland chapter. I just, I thought it was really exceptional. And I hadn't heard of it until somebody in my Patreon community recommended it. And I'm just, I'm so glad that I, that I read it. I wonder if this would be good on audio. I did it on audio and it was great, but I do want a physical copy because there are specifically like certain chapters that I'd like to go read again. Does she read it herself? Yes, she does. Yeah. Okay. That's kind of a requirement for me for books like this. Yeah, I agree. Do you have to be a fan of hers to appreciate it? I had very little idea who she was. Like I knew she wrote and directed Women Talking, but I I actually, I haven't even seen the movie. I liked the book. I want to watch the movie at some point. So no, I definitely, definitely not. She fills in like details that you need to know, but she just, yeah, she has this way of making her experiences just really resonate. Okay. That's so good, Sarah. I haven't even heard of this one. Oh, I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad I could get you something new. Okay. The last one that I'm going to talk about also came out in 2023. All of mine came out in 2023. And I'm shocked that this one did not get more buzz simply because her first book or her previous book, I'm actually not even sure if it was her first, was was such a a buzzy book. And this one that, that just came out is called The Future by Naomi Alderman, which I pre-ordered because I loved her previous book, The Power, which I thought was so good and interesting and sort of women empowerment and I'd let I, I loved it it's sort of dystopian and whatever but the future also has a dystopian angle to it but it's quite different did you read this one I haven't read the future I have read the power and I also loved it and I'm also surprised it didn't get more buzz so yeah tell I, me, I don't tell know if it was it. the timing <laughs> it came out in November but yeah. I don't know I just thought because so many people loved the power that I thought it would just sort of get more recognition. I just did not hear very many people talk about it. Yeah. So the, this one's really hard to explain. It's one of these novels that is sort of hard to explain what it's about without any spoilers, because there are a lot of twists, but I'm going to read to you kind of what the, the publisher says it's about and then explain a little bit more, but it says the future is a handful of friends the daughter of a cult leader, a non-binary hacker, an ousted Silicon Valley visionary, the concerned wife of a dangerous CEO, and an internet-famous survivalist, hatching a daring plan that could be the greatest heist ever or the cataclysmic end of civilization. So it's these group of sort of unlikely, um, but they're all sort of tangentially involved in big tech. Big okay. tech. So... This is like the wife of one, a hacker, like I said, like uh, these sort of different characters that kind of come together and they're, they are in a time in this sort of near future, I guess, where tech billionaires, so Mark Zuckerberg's, Elon Musk's, those people are building bunkers, which is weird because that's what's actually happening right now in real life. But they are in the in the novel in the future. They are building these sort of bunkers, and and people are like, do they know something we don't know about, like the end of the world? Is something happening? Is nuclear war brewing? Is you know what's why do the people who know things seem to be doomsday prepping actively? And 
something does happen. It's not what you expect. And this is what's hard to talk about without any spoilers, but something does happen. And it's just so weird <laughs> and creative. And there are lots of twists and turns. You can't, I cannot literally say anything about this plot because there's so many twists to what's going on. But it's very creative because these are, you know, tech people or tangentially related tech people. And this group that I already described, they sort of come together to either decide to try to sort of save what's happening. There are so many creative scenes in this book. So I, I liked this book. It's a little bit unnecessarily complicated. Okay. In some ways, which is which is maybe why I wonder that it didn't really take off because you you can't breeze through it really. <laughs> even though it it reads like a book you could breeze through like it's very readable and easy but it's also like wait what like there were just sort of the tech aspects and whatever it was just a little bit a little bit unnecessarily complicated I feel like but there were some scenes in it that will stay with me this is how the power was too there are certain scenes that will just stay with me like I'm like whoa what if that was the future this is scary, but also super creative with some of the tech innovations and, and some of the ways that these this group kind of comes together. They put their knowledge and powers together. is so fascinating. You know, there's weapons that are sort of futuristic. It's just wild. Like, I just thought it was wild. I just, I did think it was a smidge like, what? <laughs> I don't totally follow. But Overall, I really liked it. I mean, bringing it to the show because I do feel like it went too much under the radar for like an author who I think is writing some super interesting things. It's not the kind of girl power thing that the the power was. It's more of a the people versus the tech billionaires, you know, sort of sort of a dynamic power struggle there. And which is kind of fun to read about, also scary. But yeah, I really liked it. And I just don't understand why more people aren't talking about it. And I get, it might have just been the end of the year, might have just been a timing thing, but it's definitely worth a read, especially if you're interested in some of the headlines that are happening. Like if you're just like, wow, is there something we don't know? Seems yeah. like there might be. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I I do want to read that. I, I'm so glad you said what you said about like the specific scenes and the technology and just the little details, because those are the things that stuck with me about the power as well. Yes. So that's sort of her, like one of her really amazing skills, I feel like as a writer, like there's a scene in a, in a shopping mall, a futuristic shopping mall, like kind of a fight sort of thing scene. And I just was like, this is so creative and memorable and scary, but also like, like the power, even though it's, it's dystopian and not it's not set pre present day at all. And it's also not exactly real. There's something about it that feels really real. Mm, yeah. Which maybe I just don't read enough dystopian or fantasy or, or the things that like, maybe that's like the power of those things is that they feel like it could happen. You know, that is what the future felt like to me, even though it gets, it really, it gets very intense and kind of crazy, but just interesting. I just thought it was a super interesting story. And that, yeah, it's called The Future by Naomi Alderman. I'm going to check that out. Sarah, this was so fun to talk books with you. We could keep going for hours. I know. We really could. I wish we were in book club. Although we both we both host online book clubs, so we could be in book club together. We're just both so busy. 
That is true. That is true. We are in book clubs, just not with each other. Yeah. I always love hearing your take on books. Everyone, she is at Fiction Matters on Instagram, and I will link to her newsletter, to her book club that she hosts, to her podcast novel pairings, all of the things that you need to know about Sarah, because I know that you are going to want to go follow her in all of those places. So thank you for being here with us. If you want to stick around, Patreon subscribers, Secret Stuffers, Sarah is also going to share with us a bonus book, a book that's coming out soon that she wants everyone to read. And then also her TBR management system, how she manages the dozens of books on her to-be-read shelf. She's going to share that with us. So you can join us over at lauratremaine.com slash secret stuff if you want to hear the rest of that conversation, because it's going to be a good one. So thanks for being here, friend. Thanks so much for having me. 